So, I invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 29 uh, this morning. Genesis 29, and we're going to be looking at the end of that chapter. Genesis 29, just the last five verses of that chapter and then all of chapter 30 today. Again, there is a sermon handout, which I really encourage you to get if you don't have. Um, I'll have a few PowerPoints uh, as we go through as well, but um, that could be a way of helping you take notes here today or to consider what God is doing in this text of Scripture. Well, we've been working our way through the Jacob story, and we're in a section of the Jacob story I call the Laban Chronicles uh, Laban, of course, is his father-in-law, uh, where uh, Jacob has to negotiate uh, the purchase of a wife, well, two, and uh, we've already learned uh, some of that in the Laban Chronicles, and we come to an important note of progress uh, in Jacob's life in the text. Jacob has already served faithfully for seven years to be able to purchase uh, Leah as his wife, and in our text, we're going to find out what happens over the next 13 years. He spends 20 total years with Laban, uh, but we'll find out what happens in those next 13 years. Those 13 years are divided roughly in half by Moses, the biblical author, and he uh, tells about how God increases Jacob's children in the first seven of those years, uh, from Genesis 29:31 down to the middle of chapter 30. And then uh, he tells about uh, how God increases Jacob's wealth, so his children and his wealth, um, while he's in Padam Aram over the last six years of that time. This means that our attention in this passage this morning involves two short stories about all of Jacob's children and about how he gains wealth and livestock in this passage, and they're held together by the idea of God increasing him. As I go through this passage, I have been overwhelmed time and time again in Genesis. One of the lasting impacts, I think, upon my conscience is just being amazed that God would bless such sinful men and women. I'd not only use the word amazed, I might use the word encouraged, uh, because you know, it's first easy to sit in judgment on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of their sins, and the the, women's, the women connected with them. But, but then if we truly look and examine our own heart, then it's encouraging to see how God will bless sinful men and women. And we know, of course, now it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This past week, our family was enjoying family devotions, and we're reading a study up through the Old Testament to point to Christ, and we're in the end of Genesis. And I, I'm not going to give away the, the end of this book, but there are sections in this book which will be very hard to preach in a public setting. People are so sinful. And yet, God miraculously and graciously provides a way to save humanity through these people. Uh, and so, uh, as we look at this text today, uh, it's going to be similar. Uh, as we look at these stories, we're going to see sinfulness on display, and we're going to see the grace of God. In the first seven years of Jacob's marriages, God builds his family. The first story uh, goes from Genesis 29, 31 through 30, verse 24. Moses sets up this story as an ongoing competition or battle 
He uses like warfare imagery sometimes, but the battle is between rival sisters, Rachel and Leah, and it is a story, a battle about them giving birth. Uh, several preachers, I don't know why they all did this, they all call, entitled, many of them entitled their sermons Birth Wars. Okay, but that kind of gives you a picture of what we're going to see. There's a competition or a rival between Rachel and Leah about giving birth to sons for Jacob. We've already seen the destruction that rival siblings can bring in Jacob's life. But this story kind of follows the ups and downs, the torturous ups and downs of four women's fertility and their mutual relationship with one another and their vying with one another. This story is spurned further by marital favoritism. The story actually demonstrates the conflict between the sisters and emphasizes, uh, it, I, I think, two critical points in the story, Rachel's claims of victory in the battle. She's been victorious over Leah. But let's look more closely at it, uh, this ancient family drama. It all starts with God giving Jacob sons through Leah in verses, 29 through, uh, verses 31 through 35 of chapter 29. So look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore she called his name, or his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The story begins here with God's determination to bless Leah because Jacob didn't love her. He hated her. When compared to his wife, Rachel, he loved Rachel, but not Leah. Unfortunately, though, from my reading of the text, not only here, but a little bit later in the text, I think Leah becomes consumed with this. And she sets her sole purpose in life to gain the favor or love of Jacob, her husband. We can see this obsession from her, that's the word I'd give it, this obsession from Leah to gain her husband's approval and love, even in the names that she assigns to her children. Uh, children, you ever wonder how your parents got the, your name, how they picked it out? Well, these names are quite unusual. In verse 32, she bears a son and she calls his name Reuben. Now, each son is kind of given a name here that's based on a pun or a play on words in the original language. While the name Reuben means literally, behold a son or see a son, the consonants of the name are the same as the Hebrew word for see. God has seen her affliction, so she calls her son, see, a son. Next, she bears Simeon. His name contains the same Hebrew consonants as the word hear. Sama, Simeon. You can almost hear the same consonants there, Sama, Simeon. 
God has heard, heard that she's hated. Then her third child, she names Levi. Now, what could be wrong with that name? Right. I always love it when one of my children are named in the biblical text. It keeps them awake, <laughs> startles them in the sermon from time to time. Well, Levi's name means united or attached. So Leah's strong compulsion to gain favor and love from her husband is on display again with the name Levi. She says, this time my husband will be attached to me. Yet in all of God's blessing, her focus has remained on getting what she does not have from her husband. She wants his love. My opinion, she has made an idol out of this relationship with her husband Jacob. Leah is despised, hated by her husband. I mean, imagine the pain there would be to be in Leah's place. So she craves his favor. Martin Luther actually had an interesting way of describing Leah here that I think is helpful. It's on the slide behind me. Luther said, wretched Leah powerfully described uh, wretched Leah sets sadly in her tent with her maid, spinning and weeping. She has been scorned and hated. Leah is not beautiful, but odious and hated. No one pays attention to her. And so she thinks that children, sons, will bring the love that she so strongly craves. But Leah will not be the last woman to discover that pregnancy is not a guarantee of a spouse's support, love, or care. Her compulsion is to find fulfillment and love in this one human relationship. In the past few weeks, I've had the privilege of co-handling some premarital counseling with one of our other pastors and our spouses. So Pastor Thomas and I are doing this together. And as we're uh, ministering to this uh, engaged couple, we're looking forward with them to what God is doing. Uh, this past week, um, one of the nights this week, uh, Pastor Thomas shared a devotional with the couple when I was there. And uh, he said something like this, and if you have a, that handout, I transcribed it at the bottom in the gray box at the bottom. If not, you can just listen. In the devotional, Pastor Thomas said something like this. He said, Husbands don't live for the well-being of their wives. That's not a high enough goal. Wives don't live for the good of their husbands. That's not a high enough goal either. Husbands and wives live for something bigger. They live for the benefit of the one who for their sake died and was raised. I just love that when I saw that. Just, you know, that is a powerful reminder to me about my existence. In marriage. Men and women, we can make an idol out of just about anything, including a spouse, or our spouse, or our relationship with a spouse. Or we can use our spouse to pursue an idol of our own heart. Leah, in this text, is using Jacob and her children and their names to pursue her idol human love and acceptance from her husband. Instead for us, I hope this would be true of us, that God is our source of satisfaction. And so I ask you, 
Is Jesus your life? Your very reason for being or remaining on this planet? Is that how much Jesus means to you? Now, to go back to Leah's story here in, in the end of Genesis 29, it's not until her fourth son arrives that she momentarily breaks away from the sinful pattern and she focuses on how God has been blessing her all along despite her husband's failure. In verse 35, she has a fourth son and she gives him the name Judah. Now, the consonants for the name Judah in Hebrew uh, are the same consonants for the word praise. She says that she's called her first, fourth son Judah because this time she will praise the Lord. You notice in the description of Judah's name, there's, there's no mention at all about her relationship with Jacob or marriage. That passes off the seas. Now, Judah, his names, it's only going to be about the Lord. It's going to be about the Lord. She puts her focus on the good things that God has been providing for her all along the way. Before we leave this chapter and go into Genesis 30, I want to make one more observation about God's blessing on Leah. Although here she's not preferred by her husband, she became married through deception, God's abundant provision for her can be seen all through the text. She was hated and God opened her womb. God's abundant provision is also seen in the fact that he gives her two very significant sons. I mean, these four so far that we see are you know, leaders of the tribes of Israel, but the two that are most significant, perhaps from a human perspective, are Levi and Judah. Levi, the one from whom the priests will come for Israel, and Judah, the one from whom the kings will come, including the king that one day would be born in a manger. Jesus Christ, that delivers us from our sin. Men and women, this is the sort of God that we have, one who cares for his children when they are mistreated. As one of our members uh, put in a social media post here recently, when she's, she's going through a challenging time, a very difficult time right now, she said this, she says, God is good and he's worthy of our trust. I thought this is just a powerful testimony to the fact that we have a God who cares for us. Okay, but the family drama is not done here. It's just beginning. So we got we to pick up the pace a little bit. God's been blessing Leah abundantly with sons. Now, stop. How do you suppose Rachel is going to respond to this? She's going to be happy. Well, you, you said the sermon's like entitled something like birth wars or something. So it's probably not going to go well. In verses 1 through 8, we find out what happens next uh, through Rachel's servant, Billa, Bilha. Look at uh, chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore his name, uh, he, he shall be called, or therefore she called his name Dan. 
Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Okay, so we'll stop there. The text says, uh, begins that Rachel's envious. She's jealous. She's not content with her plight in life either. Remember, Leah has children, but she craves more. She wants love. Rachel has love, but she craves children or motherhood. Rachel also worships an idol that she's made in her own heart. Idol of motherhood. I want to point out three important developments in the relationship between Jacob and Rachel that I think transpire in this little section. First, did you notice uh, in verse 1, at the end of the verse, Rachel's exclamation? She says, give me children or I will die. Of course, this is overstated, but it stresses how much she's grieving about not having children. Some in our assembly desire children as well. I know this. I've prayed with many of you. There might be some I I don't know of. I, I want you to know that we love you. We long for you, with you, that God will give you children. We pray that way for you. We pray specifically that God would do this so that you would honor him and show your children the joys of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet for Rachel here, ironically, her statement that she makes, give me children or else I die, later becomes true at the birth of one of her children. Her second son. This is an example for her of being careful what she wishes for. Give me children or I'll die. Later she does die in childbirth. But second, notice in verse 2 that Jacob is not kind in his answer. He's unkind here. One commentator describes it better than I could. He said, Jacob does not handle the exasperation of Rachel very well. He does not pray to God for his wife, nor does he give her any comfort. Rather, he becomes angry with her as if she's blaming him for her barrenness. I'd say it this way. He responds in the flesh and says that he is not God to give her children. But then Rachel, and the third significant thing in this interaction here, Rachel fails to trust God. And she presents her handmaid as a way for her to have children of Jacob. She is set on solving her problems by her own devices. She repeats the sin of Sarah, the error of Sarah. She's learned nothing, but she is desperate. And her plan does produce two sons that she can claim as her own legally. Dan, which means judge, And Naphtali, which is a very interesting name, which means, literally could be translated, my wrestlings. And she makes it clear with that last name, Naphtali, that she understands all of this so far, this back and forth, giving of sons and bearing of sons, has been a battle or a contest in her eyes. Look again at verse 8. She says, for with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Which is her way to contrive of a victory against her sinner. 
What a picture-perfect home, right? Man, this is all going so well, right? No, rival sisters competing for sons and identifying those sons with names that will make a point to their sister, her sister. Perhaps you think it can't get any worse. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verses 9 through 13. As uh, Jacob gets sons through Leah's servant, Zilpah. Look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for uh, women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Here, just very quickly, Zilpah becomes Jacob's fourth wife, and she bears two more children for Leah. One named Gad, the other Asher. It seems that Leah has gone barren for a time. But according to the math, as I look at it, I think she's only barren for like a year to two. It's not very long at all, but in that time, she's not able to have children. So she wants to gain more honor and love by producing more sons for Jacob. Okay, and so the result is now we have eight sons so far, not the full 12, but things are moving quickly. That's when a new twist occurs uh, that brings three more children. Look at verse 14. Through Leah again, I've entitled this. Look at verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went forth and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it's a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then, uh, Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now he gets uh, children 9, 10, and 11 through Leah again. I think it's uh, sinful, lustful people who come to this text and think, more wives, more pleasure or joy. That is never how it works. Never. Please note that the Bible nowhere condones polygamy. As a matter of fact, in the original creation mandate, it should be clear enough, back in Genesis, God made one man and one woman to be joined together so that the two might become one. Later, Revelation states it even clearer. Having more than one wife or spouse at any time is always sinful. And polygamy always results in pain and anguish for everyone involved. It has consequences. And so, for instance, let's see how Jacob is treated in this text. Leah comes out to meet him in the field and makes demands of him. She's bartered to hire him for a night. 
You see, her son found mandrakes in a field. Now, mandrakes were rare fruit, hardly ever to be found in that area, that the ancients superstitiously thought increased a woman's fertility. She gave some of her mandrakes to her barren sister Rachel and hired Jacob to get more of what she wants, children. One commentator, Bruce Waldke, I think describes how low things have gone here in their relationship. He writes, Jacob is addressed by his wives twice in this passage, and both times it demonstrates the impoverished state of his relationship to them. He's addressed once by Rachel, give me children, and once by Leah, I have hired you. Both statements reveal a dysfunctional home without a spiritual leader. So Leah, through this contract, contractual hiring, has another son, Issachar. Then later, Zebulon, and a girl named Dinah, which means to judge. That makes ten sons, eight from Leah, one daughter, and uh, her servant. But then to round out the first seven years of Jacob's marriages, in verses 22 through 24, he has one more son. Look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Again, for my math and trying to figure out this text, I think it's been a few years since she'd received the mandrakes. Evidently, those didn't work. But finally, God moves. God opens her womb. This is his domain. He can do this. So Rachel has a son, and she gives a name to her son too. The name she gives is Joseph, and he's going to become a major character throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Now the name Joseph is another pun. In that the uh, Hebrew words, uh, it, uh, she makes a pun on his name with the Hebrew words for take away, and add, but primarily the word add. And so with the birth of her son, she hopes or longs for the addition of another child. So she calls her son Joseph, or addition. Rachel seems happy in this text, but she's not yet content. She wants another son. She finally gets what she's been craving after for seven years of marriage, but it's not as fulfilling, perhaps, as she thought. Which, by the way, isn't, isn't that what it's like for us often with our own idols of the heart? We can't get enough. We scheme and plot for a certain relationship, but then that relationship transpires and comes, and it's just not fulfilling. Or we scheme and plot for some accomplishment in life, we strive for it for years and years and years. And then by God's grace, it finally comes and it's hollow. 
Think of what you know of what some, you know, sport, professional sports players have said about winning championships. Think about what we know about some Olympian testimonies who they train for years and years and years to get gold medal, and they get one and two and three and four, and at the end, it's not, not enough. We can't get enough either. It, it never satisfies. We want more and more, and it's all hollow. That's because these are idols that we make that, that cannot bring the joy of Jesus Christ to us. And so I ask you again, is he the reason for your existence, the reason for your life? Are you satisfied in him alone? Well, there's a second half of this story that we can go through quickly. I'm going to read through it and just make a few comments, but we move from increased children to increased wealth. And uh, in verse 25, this transition takes place. Jacob's been married for seven years. A lot has happened in those years. He now has four wives and 12 children, and by the way, he's dirt poor, which I think is often how it goes if you've got a lot of kids. Dirt poor. That leads us to the second short story that takes place over a period of six years. The short story talks about his increased wealth. It starts with a negotiation. Look at verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served that I may go, for you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, uh, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourselves know how I served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, uh, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. You will do this for me, for I will again, uh, or if you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be done as you have said. So here first, God builds Jacob's family. Before this, now he builds his livestock. The years of working to pay off his debt for Rachel and Leah are finally over, and so he wants to go home, but Laban won't have any of it. And they start a negotiation that has two rounds to it. The end result is that Jacob agrees to stay if Laban will give him all of the abnormal or misfit animals from his flocks and herds. And Laban immediately agrees. He thinks this is a good idea. That leads to the final part of the story where he gets new wealth. Look at verses 35 through 43. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats uh, and, that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his, of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white trees in them, exposing the white of the sticks. 
He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not uh, put them with Laban's flocks. Whenever the stronger the flocks were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they may breed among the sticks. But when the feebler of the flock, uh, but for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's, the stronger Jacob's. Then a final summary. Thus the man, that's Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. We don't have a lot of time here, but I think we can go through this fairly quickly. The agreement is that Jacob will get all the multicolored animals from Laban's flocks. But do you notice at the first verse, verse 35, what Laban does? Laban, purge, on the very same day of the agreement, Laban goes through and he purges out all of the misfit animals and he gives them all to his sons to keep. Okay, so what's left are like the pure lambs and goats and sheep. It's just like Laban, right? Not only will he give Jacob nothing to start with, he undoubtedly believes <clears throat> that he's made it a lot harder for Jacob to get anything to support himself and his family. But that's when Jacob, remember, this is like dueling tricksters. Jacob devises a way to trick Laban. Okay, why is he away? Three days away. And when the animals come to breed, Jacob does something really interesting. He strips poplar, almond, and plain sticks down bark off them, to reveal the inner white of their branches. Then, that wasn't bizarre enough, he puts the sticks in the watering troughs of the animals. And it seems that for some reason this works, and it produces spotted, speckled, and striped animals. So I want to stop for just a moment and ask, what in the world is going on here? I mean, this was really intriguing to me uh, the last few weeks as I've been looking at this. I think that there are two possibilities here, and if you've got notes on the very back of the handout, I, I walk through these. Matter of fact, don't, don't read that quite yet. It's coming. <laughs> Some more recent scholars come to this text, and they suggest that, number one, this is one possible way. Jacob exposes the animals through these sticks to a pre prenatal nutrient that affects the genes of the animals. Okay, this is where we're going to read one man kind of summarizing what scholars are saying now. Andrew Steinman, he writes, It has been proposed, recently proposed that Jacob's use of the branches actually has an explanation in epigenetics. It is now known that prenatal nutrition can affect gene expression. Jacob stripping the bark from the branches may have exposed some nutrient that was then in the drinking water of the pregnant animals, thereby changing the color of the coats of the young that they bore. Okay, so that's one possibility. If you're into epigenetics. 
Others, however, say it differently. They suggest that Jacob follows a popular superstition of ancient times. It was common among the ancients to think that a vivid sight during conception or the pregnancy of an animal would leave its mark on an embryo. That is, the coloring of the lambs and kids is determined by what their parents see during intercourse. If they look at multicolored posts when they mate, their young will be multicolored. Okay, but I'm reading these possibilities, so I'm look, looking at the text, and I'm like, could either of these be right? Either of these be true? I mean, should we be careful what our animals drink or see when they mate? Well, I'll just answer this way. I am not an expert in epigenetics. I can barely pronounce it. And it's one of my pet peeves when pastors kind of venture into areas of medicine and like pronounce authoritative statements. My personal opinion, however, is that there was nothing to either of these theories. Or even if there is something to one or other theory, it's God, not Jacob's scheming, that actually brings the blessing. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, if you turn over to chapter 31, verse 12, Jacob explains that he has also, during this time, received a dream where an angel gives him a message from God. And this is what God says to him, verse 12. Genesis 31, 12. And he, God, said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, because I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. We'll just stop there. In one way or another, God has been the ultimate source of his blessing. All of these speckled and spotted lambs and goats come because he's blessing Jacob. He's promised a blessing. And so I would say, you know, in this text, it's kind of frustrating if you read a lot on this text. People were like really mesmerized by like the superstition. What are the mandrakes? I think we found them in a little field over here in one corner or whatever. Or what, what are these sticks? Can we reproduce this? And they are so distracted by that they fail to see what Moses emphasizes, and that is the God of creation decided to bless Jacob and to do this miraculously. I would much rather you spend an afternoon studying about the God of creation than mandrakes or poplar trees. The end result in our story is the final verse of chapter 30. It says, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. In these six years, he now has unprecedented wealth to take care of his enormous family. God has been increasing him with children and with wealth. As we finish our attention to this passage this morning, I ask you, have you again seen God's goodness in this text to people who deserve nothing. You've seen that? No one in this text deserves anything. Laban, Jacob, Leah, Rachel. Have you seen God's goodness and deserving people? As we close, perhaps you've also seen the lust of your own heart. This text, perhaps through the Spirit, somehow He's convicted you 
What idol are you making in your own heart? What relationship? What object? What pursuit? What dream are you pursuing above all else? Is it time that you confess to God all of your scheming to make things happen and rest before Him because He's a good and gracious God who loves His children? Let's pray together. Father, I know that as I preach through a text like this one with topics as sensitive that you might be doing a profound work in hearts and lives. Lord, I've not really named other possible idols very much, but our hearts, as one man said, our hearts are idol factories. We're really good at setting up goals or dreams or relationships or fulfillment in various ways that uh, are inferior, that are not the high and noble goal that should be ours as believers. And so, Father, this morning, I, I don't even know how to specifically pray for each brother or sister here, but I know, Lord, that you, through your word, are working in their lives. So please give them strength. Encourage them. Comfort them if there's grief. But Lord, in your gracious way, I pray that you would show them, show all of us, that there's really only one object. There's one person that must be our ultimate goal. And Lord, may we renew ourselves again to pursuing Christ with the life and breath you give us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand uh, and uh, have a final song. Uh, let me just do our final announcements uh, as they come to uh, lead us in the song. Uh, we're going to be having Bible studies uh, today from 11 to 12 all across campus, and so we invite you to come and to be a part of one of those if you'd like to do that. If you've never been to one of the children or adult Bible studies, you can go to the Welcome Center area, and they'll uh, point you in the direction of a good study. We love the scriptures here. We want to learn and grow together in our appreciation for them and knowledge of them. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, we've talked about Him. He is the Lamb of God this time of the year. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. He came. He was only born. He died on a cross for your sins. If you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you or repented of your sin, I would love to talk with you. You could talk to one of our members here. And the odds are someone right around you, right next to you, would be able to explain to you exactly what you would need to believe in the name of Jesus Christ to be delivered from your sins. And we pray that you would do that today. And to my brothers and sisters here, it's, it's been a joy to be able to preach through this text of Scripture with you. And I just encourage you from God's Word to keep your focus on Christ. There are likely some challenges that many of you bear. There are perhaps idols that you've produced, just like there were idols in my own heart that I had to admit to the Lord. 
But I pray that you would see through those things by the power of the Spirit and that he would enable you to walk before him, pursuing him, him alone. He's worthy of it all.